Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, a time that we can come and we can remember the birth of your son, Jesus. We can be thankful that you were uh, watching over your people whom you created and you were willing to send a savior uh, to save us from our sins, something we were incapable of doing on our own and in your kindness to us, uh, you sent your very own son, Jesus. And so we thank you for that this morning, and I pray as we open your word, and as we look at a psalm that proclaims the goodness of you, that we would be excited again for this season. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. As I read this psalm, you are going to see a question at the end of the psalm. The question says, who is this king of glory? It's repeated there at the end of the psalm. It's from this phrase uh, that my Bible has a man-made title there at the top of this little section. It's called the king of glory. And it's from that phrase uh, that I drew the title of our sermon this morning, who is this king of Christmas, because that is uh, what we're looking at. So I want you to follow along as I read the uh, Psalms, only 10 verses long. Uh, so follow along in your Bible or on the screen. This is a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Well, we began our Christmas series last week, and this year we decided to take each of three weeks leading up to Christmas Day to focus on Christmas from the Psalms. From the Psalms. Now, that might seem a little odd to you at first, but I want to remind you that the entire Bible is about one person, namely the person of Jesus. From beginning to end, you can find Jesus on every page of the Bible, which of course then includes the Psalms. You mean the, the Psalms are about Jesus? They are about Jesus. There's a lot in the Psalms. There's a lot in there about humans as well. There's a lot in there about suffering. There's a lot in there about joy and tribulation. There's a lot in there about petitions to the Father. But there's also a lot that's in the Psalms that's pointing forward to the coming Messiah. In fact, when Jesus met with his disciples after his resurrection, he mentions the Psalms directly. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So here we read that even Jesus said the Psalms point to me. And so as you read through the Psalms, you need to keep one eye on Jesus. There's not always a direct line, a direct place from the Psalm to the person of Jesus, but most of the Psalms talk to us about who is this Lord who's coming? Who is this Messiah? Where can we find the fulfillment of this King of glory who's coming? So it's fitting that for Christmas we would turn to the Psalms and find Jesus here in the Psalms. Now, if you have your message notes with you, I've broken down this psalm into four parts. Uh, You can see those four there uh, in front of you. The first part is God's rightful rule over all of creation. The second part of this psalm poses a question which leads to an immediate dilemma on our part. Part three solves the dilemma as we see God's remedy unfold. And then part four, those last few verses there, gives us the unbelievably delightful blessing, which is ours in Christ Jesus. So we're going to move through those in that order. Okay, so first, notice God's rule. If you look again at the opening of verse one, it says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. By the way, how many of you have Bibles where the word Lord there is in all capital letters? Some of you? Most of you? Okay. Uh, When you see that, all capital letters, I'm using the ESV, other translations do the same thing. Translators are taking great care to differentiate the special personal name of God, Yahweh, from other uses of the word Lord which can mean other names of God. So in the Old Testament, if you see the word Lord and the first letter is capitalized, but the rest of them are in lower case, then that is telling you that the Hebrew behind that name is more like a a general name for God, like Elohim, or sometimes a word can be used there that can mean like El Shaddai, God Almighty, different variations of the word God. But if you look at your Bible and that word is in all capital letters, then the translators are telling you that that is God's personal, formal name for himself. It's Yahweh. So the psalmist here is beginning, the earth is Yahweh's. And the fullness thereof. That is a statement of ownership, of authority, of possession, and of rule. Why? Why does Yahweh own everything? Why does Yahweh have authority over all things? Well, it's important for you to know that Yahweh is sovereign, wise, and good. In his sovereignty, according to Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. Out of nothing, God brought everything into being by the sheer existence of his divine will and power. That's his sovereignty. He can do that. 
And in his wisdom, as he created, he designed all of this with intelligence and creativity and interconnectivity so that when you and I look at the created world, and it is broken today, we understand that, but even as a fallen creation, we understand that it has a maker. It could not have just exploded out of a little ball of atoms. And although it has fallen because of the sin in the Garden of Eden, when it was created, it was created good. God, God created it good because he's a good God. And at the end of each day, God said, this is good. This is good. And then, of course, on the last day of his creation, he said, this is very good. God was sovereign, wise, and good as he created And because he created it all, he can do with it as he pleases. If you're ever around an inventor, you get a a glimpse of this. An inventor invents something on earth, and because he invented it, he or she, he gets to do with it what he wants. It's his or her invention, right? The same thing holds true for God. It's his to own and to do with as he chooses, In Psalm 50, verses 10 to 12, we read, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God speaking. In Haggai, chapter 2, God says, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. In the New Testament, Paul even quotes this psalm to make his point to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all God's. Why? Because he made it, including you and me. That's the end of this verse in verse 1. If you look back down at the end of the psalm, the world and those who dwell in it. That's you. God's glory, his brilliance, his majesty, his unquestionable authority is on full display in his creation. Literally every part of creation, from trees to animals to humans to stars to chemical bonds, every part was created by him and for him to bring him glory. Which is why it is incredibly brazen and logically inconceivable that humans would think that they are in charge. People can call themselves owners of the land or owners of a house, owners of their body, owners of a nation, and people can make whatever laws they choose about those things. But in literal truth, Every inch of the earth from center to surface is God's. You and I are merely tenants at will. We just occupy a space. And you and I at any moment may be called out of this world and into the presence of our creator. Jesus warns a person in the gospels, a person who took ownership beyond what God had designated to him, without acknowledging the true owner, God himself. Listen in Luke 12. Jesus told him a parable saying, 
The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, I love how he talks to himself. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It is our duty to pay homage to the creator, the owner of all things, Yahweh. It was out of the formlessness of Genesis 1-2 that God founded the earth upon the seas and he established it upon the rivers. And for that, God deserves ultimate respect, ultimate service. It's all his which leads to a dilemma in verse 3. Look at your Bible again. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? David, as he's writing this psalm here, is referring to the temple mount in the city of Jerusalem. And quite literally, in order to stand up there, you have to ascend from the valley up the mountain, up the uh, temple steps in order to arrive at the holy place where God met his people. And if you've been watching the news lately, you know that there's all kinds of turmoil going on in Israel right now, uh, in, in, in Jerusalem and that surrounding area. But Jerusalem has always had and will always have a special place in the heart of God. God chose Israel specifically to be his representatives on the earth. They messed it up really badly, even killing God's own son. We know that. But in the future, we're told that a new Jerusalem will come down, Revelation reminds us, and Christ will again reign in his fullness of glory. So this city, Jerusalem, and this temple here that David is referencing have enormous significance in the plan of God for his people. But there's a problem. There's only one kind of person who is able to ascend the hill and stand in this place without being immediately incinerated by a holy God. It is a person who is perfectly holy like God himself. All others will be consumed by the purifying glory of the Almighty. If you remember back in the Old Testament, there's a story in in Exodus. Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. Okay? Uh, and, And so God replies, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so if you remember the story, God hid Moses in a rock He passed by him, and Moses was allowed to see uh, the glory of God as it faded off in the distance. 
a direct look into the glorious face of the Creator by a mere human would mean instant death. Why? Well, the psalmist tells us there's qualifications to be able to stand in front of a holy God and survive. Look at it in, in verse 4. Who, what are the qualifications? It is he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And we'll stop there for just a second. The scripture says, first of all, it's a person who has clean hands. Okay, he's, he's talking about our actions there. A person must be pure. Uh, it, it must be a person who has not defiled himself by violence or bribery or fraud or unjust gain or in, really any kind of wrongdoing against God or mankind. Our hands are instruments of action, but our hands are governed by what? They're governed by our heart, right? So the heart must be pure so that the actions that are coming out of it are motivated by righteousness and not by self-interest. There's a wonderful commentator on the book of Psalms. His name is William Plumer. And he remarks, men judge the heart by acts, A-C-T-S. But God judges acts by the heart and judges the heart by itself. The psalmist says, you got to have a clean hands. you got to have a pure heart. The psalmist continues in verse 4. He says, here's another qualification. He does not lift up his soul to what is false. A person who lifts up his soul to what is false is a person who is admiring, worshiping things that are worthless, things that are futile, things that are inconsequential, things that are deceitful. We would even call them idolatrous. They can be all kinds of things. You might be sitting here this morning running out after the fountain of youth. You might be here this morning running after six-pack abs. You might be running after the Barbie doll of a spouse. You might be running after the flashiest car, the latest in fashion. You might be even just living for that next awesome vacation experience. If you lift up your soul to those things, you love those things more than you love the God who gives you those things, the psalmist says you're disqualified from standing, ascending the hill of the Lord. And the psalmist lastly says, the one who shall ascend the hill and stand in the holy place is the one, end of verse 4, who does not swear deceitfully. False swearing is the worst, or, if, or at least one of the worst, sins of the tongue. Someone might say, I swear on a stack of Bibles I didn't do that. And they did it. That's false swearing. And while that is one of the worst sins of the tongue, it is by no means the only sin of the tongue. If you have not read the, the book by Jerry Bridges titled Respectable Sins, I love the title, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins That We Tolerate, I would add that to your Christmas list. Have someone buy you that book. He has a chapter in that book titled Sins of the Tongue. And he lists the following. Let me just give you all of these that we don't often think about. There's gossip, lying, slander, 
critical speech, even when it's true, harsh words, insults, sarcasm, and ridicule. In fact, Bridges says we would have to say that any speech that tends to tear down another person, either someone we're talking about or someone we're talking to, is sinful speech. You don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you are guilty of sinful speech this morning? I want you to think back over the last week. Did you gossip? Gossip is spreading unfavorable information about someone else, even if it's true. Did you slander? Slander is ascribing wrong motives to people, even though we can't see their hearts. We don't know their particular circumstances. Did you engage in critical speech? Those are negative comments about someone that may actually be true, but it doesn't need to be said. Did you put someone down? Humiliate someone? Hurt someone with that jab, that insult, that funny but mostly true sarcasm? When you look at Psalm 24, verse 4, there is perhaps no verse in Holy Scripture that in so few words more clearly delineates the character of a real saint. And if it is true that only a true saint can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in the holy place, then every one of us in this room has an immediate and insurmountable problem, don't we? We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Some of us may have committed some of these these sins this morning on the way to church. Some of us may be sitting here harboring these sins in our hearts as I speak. We cannot escape the breathtaking reality that none of us are qualified to see God, but are only qualified for punishment in hell. It's shocking how few people in our world acknowledge this truth. Jonathan Edwards once preached, he said, almost every natural man, that's every unbeliever, almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done and what he is now doing or what he intends to do. Everyone lays out the matter in his own mind how he shall avoid damnation and flatters himself that he contrives well for himself and that his schemes will not fail. But it's not true. We all need help. We need someone who can do this verse for us. Enter a baby on Christmas morning. 
Now, there were lots of babies born, I suspect, on December 25th, but there was one that was really special because there was one that was the Son of God become flesh. Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. This Jesus entered into his own creation. He grew in wisdom and stature, and he perfectly obeyed. He fulfilled all of the law, every single bit of it. He had spotless hands. He had a pure heart. He only lifted up his soul to God in heaven, and not one single time did he ever use his tongue in an inappropriate way. He... And only he is qualified according to this psalm. And because he loves you, he went to a cross for you. He took all your sin upon yourself and he was punished and he died in your place. And at the moment of his death, the God tore the, the curtain between the holy place from top to bottom. That that tearing was a supernatural. There is no way any human could have ever done that. That curtain was 30 feet tall and about four inches thick. This was a holy God removing the barrier that stood between him and an unholy people. And now, today, if you will believe on Jesus Christ, when you confess him as your Lord and your master, you will be, as the epistle state, placed in him. You are put in him. You are dressed in his righteousness. All of your sin has been transferred to him and all of his righteousness has been transferred to you. It's been credited to your account. So now, when Jesus ascends the hill and he presents himself as the only qualified candidate to to come before the Lord God Almighty, you are found in him. You get to stand With him. Not because of any credit you take for your own self, but because of his heart and his actions credited to your account. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Look how the psalmist describes it in verse 5. He says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You need salvation. And from eternity past, God looked forward and he saw you and he knew you. Not knew you as in he knew that you existed. He knew you in the sense of he placed his love upon you. Hear again these comforting words from Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved 
In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. You were not an afterthought to God. He knew you. He loved you. He created you. He placed his affection on you. He saved you. And he gave you what theologians call an alien righteousness. That is a righteousness that is outside of yourself. It's not your own. It's the righteousness of Christ. See it there again in verse 5. He will receive the righteousness from God, from the God of his salvation. Whose righteousness is being described? It's the righteousness of Jesus, earned by him, but given to you when you come to God for salvation. That's amazing grace. Verse 6 is interesting. If you look at it there, if you could see that verse uh, in Hebrew, it actually reads like this. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of Jacob. Now, why would we seek the face of Jacob? And why do translators add those words in there to make it say, seek the face of the God of Jacob? Okay, well, if you remember the story of Jacob from the Old Testament, he was a bit of a scoundrel in many ways. He picked up the unenviable trait of lying from his grandfather and then also from his father. Um, but Jacob perfected the trait. He perfected the skill. It got turned back on him when he was deceived by his father-in-law and he ended up marrying two women in order to get the one he really wanted. Jacob was a flawed man, to be sure. He didn't always live righteously. But it was Jacob and not his brother Esau through whom the promise of God continued. Romans 9 says it like this. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God's love comes through the lineage of Jacob. And so the psalmist here in Psalm 24 and verse 6 is making this connection. It is through compromised people, Jacob, David, who authored this psalm, and many others. It is through them that God brought his promise. Why? Because they sought the face of God. And just like Jacob, God continues to draw people to himself, electing them, saving them, imputing his righteousness to them, blessing them, and allowing them to come into his presence. 
So we seek the face of the God of Jacob. We seek the face of Jacob, the one who sought God. That's how the two come together in that verse. But here's a really cool thing. As you think about the the ending of this verse, once you are part of God's people, once you are in his presence, then what? Then what? Well, it is then that we are given the delightful blessing of living forever with the one who died for us. Look how the psalmist describes this. Look at verses 7 to 10. It's like a, it's like a two-part chorus. It's like you have people on this side and they're singing to people on this side back and forth to each other. And it, it goes like this. One side sings, lift up your head, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The other side asks this question back, who is this king of glory? The first side says, it's the Lord, strong and mighty, uh, Lord, ma- mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, and he repeats it again. Lift up the gates, lift up the ancient doors, the king of glory may come in. Chorus two, again, says, who is this king of glory? And the cor- first chorus echoes, it's the Lord of hosts. It's the king of glory. If you've ever witnessed Handel's Messiah, you will hear verses 7 through 10 going through your mind in a musical kind of way. Okay, uh, Handel took those verses and he set them to music, uh, referring to the Messiah's victorious ascension. But the spirit of these verses here, in the context of Psalm 24, is equally cheerful as it speaks to something else that Jesus is doing. By the way, if you've never heard Handel's Messiah, come back next week. I'm not going to tell you anything else, all right? There's an excerpt that you might hear uh, next Sunday morning. Uh, That's all I'm going to say about it. But come back. You're going to enjoy it. The Lord, according to this verse, is a warrior. He's definitely a warrior. But in these verses, he's not coming to conquer. He's coming home. Look what it says. Listen what Revelation 21 says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Friend, one day, all of the ick and all of the sorrow and all of the sadness of this world will be over. One day, the God of justice, Yahweh himself, will set it straight once again. But until then... Let me offer you this hope. This Jesus, who came in a cradle, is the great conqueror in this psalm. He is the king of glory. He is the hope of mankind. And you have the unbelievable opportunity to throw yourself onto this king for salvation. And I promise you that if you do that, you too will be in Christ's company on the day when Psalm 24 finds its conclusion. Will you give your life to him? This king of Christmas? He's standing waiting for you. Why don't you stand with me now and let's pray together. Who is this king of glory? He's God Almighty. He's the son, the conqueror, the one and only who is qualified to ascend the hill and stand before God. He was the one and only Jesus who had clean hands and a pure heart. And now he calls us into belief in him, salvation in him, so that we find ourselves placed in him, so that we are qualified to stand before God in Jesus Christ.
dressed in his righteousness. It's the hope of the gospel showing up in a cradle. And then we're called to live this out. We're called to live like Jesus. We know that. That's part of our calling. But it's not our doing that saves us. It's Jesus Christ. Who is this king of glory? He's the one mighty in battle. He's the one that will set up his kingdom forever again in the new Jerusalem. And we look forward to that day. God, I pray if there's any here today who has looked in his or her heart and has seen sin, that they would find hope that Jesus Christ died for it. And through repentance and faith, they can have forgiveness of sin and a renewed and reconciled relationship with Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week, Christmas Eve.